sorry, you're stuck with me today. Third string, maybe fourth or fifth, I don't really know. Um, Won't you you join me with a, a quick word of prayer? Lord, as I prepare to deliver a message today, I just want to ask that you would bless, um, and that where I am weak, uh, that your strength would shine through and bring you glory, and that words, where words fail me, that your living word uh, would be successful. In Christ's name, amen. As you know, uh, Pastor Steve Higgs is enjoying a, a vacation and a sabbatical, and we've been going through our road trip series. And in this series, we've been discussing Northwest's vision statement, that we're a growing family journeying together to be more like Jesus. And so over the first week of the series, Scott shared some stories uh, and talked about what it means to be a growing family. And then last week, he shared stories about their family vacation, and he talked about what it means to journey together. And this week, it falls to me to tell you stories of being like Jesus, But I got to tell you, this is hard for me. I do not feel qualified to speak to you about being like Jesus. I fail a thousand times a day. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I got to tell you, I feel really small. But it's sort of a catch-22, right? Because if I was to get up here and tell stories of times that I was like Jesus... Uh, at least that I thought I was being like Jesus, I would lose all credibility, right? Hey, everyone, look at me. Listen to how I was holy. Listen to how I acted like Christ. And my kids would rat me out anyway, right? Because everyone knows children are little truth detectors. Children's eyes, they're watching you. They see your every move. You guys know what I'm doing there? Uh, No, actually, I think it might be easier for me to share some stories of when I am not like Jesus. Um, For example, let's, let's watch this clip. The motor car in the hands of the average man is rapidly facing extinction. Truly, the average man is a creature of strange and unorthodox habits. Take the case of Mr. Walker. Mr. Walker lives in a quiet, respectable neighborhood. He is a typical average man, considered a good citizen and of average intelligence. He is a kindly man, courteous, punctual, and honest. Good morning, Mr. Walker. Good morning to you, Mr. Geef. Lovely day. Mr. Walker wouldn't hurt a fly, nor step on an ant. He believes in live and let live. Mr. Walker owns a motor car and considers himself a good driver. But once behind the wheel, a strange phenomenon takes place. Mr. Walker is charged with an overwhelming sense of power. His whole personality changes. Abruptly, he becomes an uncontrollable monster, a demon driver. Mr. Walker is now Mr. Wheeler, a motorist. Hey, Keith, watch where you're going, stupid! Going with your mind. 
Does anybody remember that cartoon? I, I wish I could show you the whole thing. Goofy is kind and considerate Mr. Walker until he gets behind the wheel, at which point he transforms into maniacal Mr. Wheeler. It's uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I'm sorry to say that I can be a bit of a Mr. Wheeler when it comes to my driving. My kids will tell you. Lynn calls it cowboy driving, and that's, that's probably too nice a term for it, unless you're a cowboy, then it's not nice at all. Yeehaw! But I do, I get road rage, and usually it involves someone else getting in my way. Like when someone ever so gradually creeps up to pass you, and they're driving in your blind spot for three miles, and then they finally pass you, and then they get in front of you, and immediately slow down. I hate that. Or how about this one? I I hate it when there are two cars, and one is in the passing lane, and one is in the slow lane, and they're going the same speed. And they essentially set up a roadblock so no one can get through. I hate that. And I hate it when I'm cruising along with my cruise control set, and a slow-moving driver moves over from the slow lane into the fast lane just before I pass him. And so I have to slow down for five miles while they pass the truck in front of them. Meanwhile, all the cars that are moving faster than I am pile up behind me. And so when I finally get past the slow-moving truck and the dummy that cut me off, I get over into the right lane so the others can pass me. But then I get stuck behind another slow-moving truck for another five miles before I can get back over and hit resume on the cruise control. And the icing on the cake, that slow-moving car, the one that set off the whole chain of events, he passes me again while I'm stuck in the slow lane. Oh, was that you? No, uh, sorry, sorry about that. Even worse, though, is when the slow-moving driver just stays in the fast lane. Some of my most unchristlike moments are behind the wheel. But aside from my own failings, it sort of makes sense that the worship pastor would speak on being Christ-like. You see, we have the vision statement that we are a growing family journeying together to be more like Jesus, and our leadership has identified Northwest's six journeys. Uh, Sometimes I think of them uh, as spokes on a wheel. They're all parts of the journey to the center hub of being more like Jesus, of being more Christ-like. So uh, if you would read these with me. The evangelism journey, sharing my faith story with others. The worship journey, gathering to glorify God. The relationship journey, connecting with other Christians. The generosity journey, giving my time and money to God. The maturity journey, growing in response to God's word. And the ministry journey, serving my church and community. You might say that the maturity journey especially matches the goal of being more Christ-like, but I would suggest to you that the worship journey goes hand in hand with becoming more like Christ. And maybe it's because I'm the worship pastor, or maybe it's because it's my area, but today I wanna ask you to consider that our worship can help us become more like Christ. What if worship brought us closer to our goal? That's gotta be good news, right? For many of us, worship 
the worship journey sounds like the easiest, right? The most accessible. The worship journey, gathering to glorify God. Are you telling me that I can be more Christ-like just by showing up? Anybody elbowing their spouse there? Well, maybe. Let me, let me see if I can explain it. In one sense, worship is worth-ship. It's assigning or ascribing worth to something. So we honor God when we recognize his worth. Glorious one, glorious one, light of the world, you outshine the sun. All authority, every victory is yours. How great is our God? Sing with me, how great is our God? And all will see how great, how great is our God. There is none like you, none like you, the faithful one, Jesus. When we sing praises, we are honoring God and it is worship. We even used to call it praise and worship music. Remember that? But worship doesn't end there either because there are other ways to glorify God other than just singing. In Corinthians 10, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about some pretty heavy issues. And one of these issues is Christian freedom. We call these areas of Christian liberty. And these are areas that might not be specifically addressed in scripture, but that someone might have a conscience about. And there are believers on both sides of the issue with good reasons for their position on either side. So in those days, one issue, the issue that Paul is specifically addressing is whether or not it was okay to eat meat after it had been sacrificed to an idol or a false god. And some believers would say, that's just a false god. It doesn't mean anything. It's okay to eat it. And then other believers would say, that's just it. It's a false god. We should have nothing to do with it. So Paul says, we should use our freedom to respect another believer's conscience. And then he ends with this. He says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I know that might be a lot of background for such a short verse of scripture, but I want us to see that firstly, we can glorify God through other activities other than singing, right? Whatever we do. And glorifying God, bringing glory to him, giving him glory is worth-ship, right? And secondly, that everything should bring glory to God. So the way I act at work, or the way I treat my family, or the way I drive, um, can bring glory to God. If I, if I remember, that is, to use my turn signal, or to merge well at the cloverleaf, getting on or off the interstate, uh, that can be done with an attitude of worship. And so any ideas that we have about worship being a Sunday morning only activity don't really get at the whole picture. Worship is a lifestyle, not an event. It's a way of life. It's a choice that I make every day. It's a choice that I continue to make. Now, one of my favorite passages of scripture about worship is Romans 12, one and two. But I'm gonna take it one verse at a time. In Romans 12, verse one, it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. 
Paul is using traditional worship language to teach something new. Much of Old Testament worship involved offering sacrifices. Even in Genesis, Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices of their flocks and their crops. Noah offers a sacrifice when he emerges from the ark. Later on, we see specific offerings for specific purposes, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the guilt offering. And both the offering itself, the thing that is sacrificed, and the priest, the person performing the sacrifice, have to be set apart. They have to be of special quality, without defect or blemish, blameless. Here Paul is using this word picture of offering sacrifice, something his audience is very familiar with, to describe New Testament worship. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, and Paul says now we offer ourselves. It doesn't mean that we come up front and lay ourselves over the communion table. Uh, No. We present ourselves, we surrender our will, we submit ourselves. It's kind of like when you're driving along on the highway and you're cruising along at a healthy rate of speed. By the way, when you're on the highway, where do you set your cruise control? When I was learning to drive, I learned that I could go up to five miles over the posted speed limit without getting pulled over. Anybody else learn that? Yeah, some of you. Well, now that I'm an adult, I have a new idea of where that ideal speed is. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'm going to say that it's fast enough that you're doing most of the passing, but slow enough that I don't get pulled over. (laughs) So you're cruising along at that magic speed, and you're making good time, and you're winning the game of beat the GPS. Uh, And life is good. And And then you see this. Gah! What do you do? Don't you hate that? What do you do? Come on. Think about it. You know you do. Do I really have to slow down? You check your rear view mirror. You check your side view mirrors. Looking for the fuzz. (laughs) What do you do? You pretend you don't see the sign? Do you step on it? Do you push the accelerator button on the cruise control? No. You slow down. You submit. You surrender to the law of the land. And you know that feeling. Sometimes it isn't very fun. Sometimes it isn't what you want to do. And worship is kind of like that. Because we are submitting our will to God's. And when we give him glory, we are also acknowledging that he is God. And we are not. And you might be saying, yeah, well, uh, worship needs to come from my heart to be genuine. So your, your illustration doesn't fit because you're talking about when I don't want to submit. You're talking about when my heart isn't in it. And I would say, yeah, Jesus said we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all our mind and with all our strength. But sometimes the action comes first and the heart follows. Remember the sacrifice imagery here. Sometimes there is a battle of wills, what I want versus what God wants. And there is a a giving in, a letting go, 
a surrendering. So when we surrender our will to Christ, it's worship. And when we obey his will for our life, when we obey his speed limit, it's worship. Worship is obedience. Now let's look at Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see the journey language here? The word transform is a journey word because it involves moving from one state to another. See what I did there? One state, moving one state to another. Dad jokes aside, our journeys are about change. And this was an aha moment for me as I was preparing this message. Because I knew I wanted to use this passage, but I had trouble seeing the connection. And I felt like there was part of me just going down a rabbit hole, you know? But do you see what the change is? Do you see what we're changing from? We're no longer conforming to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world. Pattern. That's an image word. We're not going to look like this world anymore. We're going to look different. And what are we going to look like? Our minds are going to be renewed. And in this transformation, in this change, in this journey, we're going to start to understand God's will better. And if we're understanding God's will better, and if we are obeying it better, and if we're doing this all the time in everything that we do, then we're really starting to look like Christ. Starting to look like someone other than ourselves, right? John the baptizer said this of Jesus. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. So worship is ascribing worth to God, honoring him, giving him glory, worth-ship. And worship is a way of life. It's how I approach everything that I do. It's a lifestyle. And worship is obedience, doing the next right thing, one step at a time. There's one more way that worship changes us to be more like Jesus, and I'm pretty sure you've heard it before. Worship is also being in relationship with God. There's this great passage in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul is comparing the old way of life under the old covenant with its rules and regulations and sacrifices to the new and better way of life under the new covenant. Life under the spirit, he says. The old way, the commandments, were carved in stone, but the new way is written on our hearts by the spirit. The old way, the rules, brought death because the wages of sin is death. And no one could ever measure up and follow them perfectly. But the new way, life under the spirit brings life. And he reminds them that when Moses went up the mountain and received the 10 commandments, some of God's glory came off on Moses. 
Moses' face is shining somehow. He's glowing. The Bible says his face was radiant. We're not sure what this would have looked like exactly, but Aaron, his brother, and the rest of the people that saw it were scared by it. They're frightened, and so they have Moses wear a veil to cover his face until the glory fades. That's in Exodus 34, if you want to look that up later and read about it. So Moses is wearing this veil, and people can't see his face. They couldn't see his likeness. Image language again, right? And he uses this illustration to say that for those who don't know Christ, it's like having a veil over their hearts. But then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16, he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we turn to the Lord, we can see Christ clearly. And then in verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the veil is removed and there's nothing separating us from Christ. And we can behold his glory, we can see him. And another translation says here, contemplate his glory. And I like that, contemplate. Because we're not just taking a glance at it like we would in our rearview mirror. We're not just glancing at it and moving on. We're taking some time. We're dwelling in it. We're considering it. We're giving it our full attention. We're concentrating on it. Some of my favorite worship songs are songs that focus on who God is, songs that do more than ascribe worth to him, songs that concentrate on who God is, on his attributes, on his godness, on his character. You are stronger, you are stronger. Sin is broken, you have saved me. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane, I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. I love songs that sing about who God is. When I sing these songs, I'm concentrating on who God is. I'm coming face to face with who he has revealed himself to be. And who he has revealed himself to be is always bigger and better than I thought. And as I contemplate who God is, I get to know who he is. And I'm also being transformed into his image. Because there's something about spending time with someone that changes us. When we spend time with someone, we become like them. In Jesus' days, uh, being a rabbi was one of the most respected occupations. And Jewish men would progress through a series of studies on their way to become a rabbi. In Beit Sefer, they would memorize the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the New Testament. Uh, And they would do that by age 10. Right? 
And then in Beit Talmud, the next level, they memorized the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, usually by age 14 or 15. And then finally, in, in Beit Midrash, they would study under a rabbi. And a rabbi would have a number of students following him around wherever he went. And they're trying to become like him. And there may have been some competition about who got to follow most closely behind the rabbi. Kind of like kindergartners arguing about who gets to be line leader. Of course, the roads in those days were hot, dirty, and dusty. And at the end of the day, whoever followed immediately behind the rabbi would be caked in the dust that their master in front of them would kick up. And there was this saying that developed among the wise men and the sages. And they would say to a disciple, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you be so close to your master's teaching that his dust is all over you. Now we've left the journey imagery for a minute and instead uh, we're gonna talk about a single place. Let's talk about home. Let's talk about where we live. In John 15, there's this neat word for living. It's called abiding. And Jesus describes this relationship with his followers. He says, abide in me and I in you. Or live in me and I in you. Now think about this. If we abide in him, if we live in him, then we are spending time with him. We are contemplating who he is. Uh, We are dwelling on him, on his nature, on his character, and his dust is getting all over us. And we're becoming like him. He is transforming us from the inside out. And he's transforming us into his image. So worship is my relationship with God that results in a lifestyle of obedience as I am being changed into his image. Let's pray together. Holy firstborn of God, I pray that you would transform us through worship to be more like you, that the Holy Spirit would reign in our hearts and that your word would dwell richly within us, that our actions would be holy and pleasing to you, and that you would encourage our first steps of surrender and submission to your will. I pray that our obedience brings you glory. Amen. There are many ways that we might exercise or experience our relationship with God. We might encounter God in scripture, in music, in journaling, in fasting, in serving. And Jesus also asks us to meet uh, in the practice that we call communion. I invite you to join with me in having communion with the Savior. Under your chair, you'll find a prepackaged communion. The bread represents his earthly physical body, which experienced tired and cold and wet and hunger and pain and ultimately death as the punishment for our sins. His body. And the cup represents his blood that covers our sins and washes us clean. His blood.
praise team is going to close us out with one last song of worship.